Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 2nd, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Before I begin tonight, I would like to say that Melissa and I are getting ready to take a road trip in order to visit some dear friends in, um, well, starting in Biloxi, Mississippi, and end up through western Louisiana, as far as Eureka Springs, Arkansas. We will be on a road for about 12 to 14 days. If anybody who lives along the way who we are not aware of would like to meet for coffee or anything like that, feel free to email me at Christagenia, info at Christagenia.org, and we would be happy to make the arrangements, and as long as it's not too far off of the um, planned route. Tonight we're going to begin a presentation of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and it's subtitled, The Purpose of His Will, of course, his meaning Yahweh God's. The entire purpose of the Bible is to record the account of the making and keeping of certain promises which Yahweh God had made to one man, whom he chose out of all other men for which to execute his will and to display his being and his sovereignty. That plan has not changed, and that same God has often asserted that he does not change. In spite of anything which they themselves had done, the twelve tribes of Israel, as they are reckoned by the apostles and by Christ himself, were considered worthy of receiving those promises, and they are still the focus of the purpose of the will of God which is the primary subject to these first few chapters of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Only by completely ignoring the language of Paul here in the first chapter of this epistle can one possibly imagine that the Old Testament and the New are somehow disconnected from one another and that somehow God has chosen a different people. But if Paul's words are observed, one can only come to the conclusion that the people of the promises in Christ are the same people of the promises in Moses, and indeed they are. Here once again we shall see that Paul of Tarsus had taught what we like to call Christian identity. As we had demonstrated during our recent presentation of the book of Acts, and especially presenting Acts chapter 28 here in January of 2014, prior to his arrest in Jerusalem, Paul of Tarsus had already written eight of the 14 epistles which we have from him. This would include those which we have already presented here, Romans 1 and 2 Corinthians and the epistle to the Galatians. The other four 
which we have not yet presented here, are 1 and 2 Thessalonians, which were actually the first two of Paul's surviving epistles, and 1 Timothy and Titus. Of the remaining six of those 14 epistles, which were all written while he was a prisoner, one seems to have been written while Paul was under arrest in Caesarea, which is the epistle to the Hebrews. Two more epistles were written by him from Rome before Timothy had voluntarily joined him there, which are this epistle to the Ephesians and then to Timothy. So this, this epistle to the Ephesians is the first of Paul's epistles which were written from Rome. The remaining three epistles, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, were all written from Rome after Timothy had joined him and shortly before his execution, which he was anticipating as he wrote to Timothy to ask the younger apostle to come to him. There is, in mainstream academia, if I must call it academia at all, contention over whether Paul himself had written this epistle and further contention over whether this epistle was even written to the Ephesians. That Paul wrote this epistle is supported by the ancient Christian writers. Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Irenaeus, Hermas, Polycarp, and Tertullian. And the epistle is attributed to Paul in the earliest lists of Christian canonical books. We have no real reason to doubt, either from circumstances or from the contents of the epistle, that Paul wrote the epistle to the Ephesians as the epistle itself asserts and displays. That Paul wrote the epistle is doubtless from the narrative of the epistle itself as well as from all credible ancient testimony. However, the contention over whether or not the epistle was originally addressed to the Ephesians has slightly greater merit, but that too can be ascertained. This contention stems from the fact that in the oldest surviving manuscripts of the epistle, which are found in the 3rd century papyrus P46, and in the codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. The words in Ephesus, in the opening salutation of the epistle, are wanting. Those words are not found in those three oldest manuscripts. This is what we said of this epistle in our presentation of Acts chapter 28, where we had recounted the writing of each of Paul's epistles in greater detail. Ephesians was written from Rome, which is evident in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 12, where Paul explained that he had sent 
Tychicus to Ephesus. And we see that Paul is a prisoner when he wrote Ephesians, which we know from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. And Tychicus had brought that letter to Ephesus, which we see in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. Before Paul wrote to Timothy, which we know from that same passage, 2 Timothy 4.12. Perhaps the full armor of Yahweh prayer at the end of the epistle to the Ephesians reveals that Paul had not yet defended himself before Caesar, something there was no mention of in the epistle, but that he was about to do so which he mentions later in 2 Timothy. And we shall discuss this again with further evidence when we present Ephesians chapter 6. In addition to this eternal evidence in the epistle itself, as well as what may be concluded from 2 Timothy, early Christian writers, such as the 2nd century Christian bishop Irenaeus, in chapters 2 and eight of book five of his writing against heresies. And the third century Bishop of Carthage, Tertullian, in books three and four of his writing against Marcion, and his successor, Cyprian, and the late second, or perhaps he was writing in the early third century, Clement of Alexandria in book four of the Stromata and in chapter five, book one of the Pedagogus. And even the more ancient writers, such as Ignatius of Antioch, and in the fragments which survive from Caius, the presbyter of Rome. All of those ancient writings, cite this epistle to the Ephesians, and they all had said that it was written to the Ephesians. These many ancient witnesses are not all of the evidence which we may find in support of the facts that Paul of Tarsus had indeed written this epistle and that he had written it to the Ephesians. However, it should certainly be more than sufficient evidence to demonstrate that. Now that we have established the writing of the epistle, we must consider who it was written to. However, the answer to the question of Ephesian identity is a complex one covering a tumultuous history of 10 centuries, and we shall only discuss it very briefly here. We will probably over-summarize it. It's a complex story. According to Strabo and other ancient Greek writers, ancient Miletus, a city nearby to Ephesus, was in the earliest times occupied by Carians, who had migrated from the isles. They were said to have been forced out of the islands of the sea and into the mainland of Anatolia by Dorians and Ionians. 
The nearby city of Ephesus was also, in the earliest times, occupied by Carians. These people were allies to the Trojans, and along with the Colicians of antiquity, they took Trojan princes as their kings. They were even said to have themselves once lived in the Troad, and at another time to have been subject to the famous King Minos of Crete. Sometime after the Trojan War, and before the 8th century BC, Ionians from Athens invaded the Anatolian coast and subjected or founded a collection of cities which became known as Ionia, although they never had a fully Ionian population. There's um, varying ancient opinions on this. While Thucydides, or some say Thucydides, the ancient general of Athens, the Athenian general, and a fairly biased source, in the 5th century BC insisted that the inhabitants of these cities, and particularly, particularly the inhabitants of Miletus, were from this point, from the Ionian invasion of the 8th century, nothing but Ionian, as he says. The historical record proves quite differently. Herodotus tells us that while Ionian troops invaded Miletus and killed the Malaysian males, they took Carian women as wives once they settled there, and that Carians continued to inhabit all the surrounding countryside. It is also evident in Ephesus and other Ionian cities that Carians continued to live in their environs and even in the cities themselves, although they were for some time subject to Athens. So perhaps Thucydides was referring to the culture and language of the people of Ephesus rather than merely to their race. The Carians were fully Hellenized. About, or not long after 700 BC, Gigas, the Lydian king, took Ephesus and several other cities from the Athenians. In the century which followed, the Lydians also fought a protracted war against Miletus in an attempt to subject that city, which ended in a truce. Ephesus was evidently destroyed completely by passing Cimmerian tribes around 650 B.C. Ionians rebuilt it, and the Lydian king Croesus subjected it again around 560 B.C. These things are known from the little which Herodotus discusses from that period. However, much of Greek history from the 12th down through the 7th centuries B.C. is wanting any contemporary narrative accounts, so we must rely on the writers of the 5th century and later. With the coming of Cyrus and his successors, the cities of Anatolia easily fell into Persian hands. The Malaysians had made a truce with the Persians even before they were actually confronted, 
Ephesus and other cities under Lydian rule, then attempted to resist the Persians, but were defeated. Herodotus says that the Phocians abandoned their city at this time and took to the sea, but the rest of the Ionian cities became subject to Persia. The Phocians had then founded Massalia, or what is now known as Marseille, on the Mediterranean coast of France, as well as other cities in the West. During this period, a man called Thales, Thales of Miletus, who was identified by Herodotus as a Phoenician by race, was considered to be one of the better counselors among the Ionians and by the Greeks. He was later known as one of the seven wise men of antiquity. After the Greek victories over the Persians at Salamis, Plataea, and Mycalae, the Athenians gained control of the Ionian cities once again, but it was quite short-lived. During the Peloponnesian Wars, we find Ephesus and other cities revolted to Sparta. And then, because Sparta received assistance from the Persians, they were soon once again under Persian rule. Shortly thereafter, they fell back under Dorian rule, and large numbers of Dorians occupied Ephesus. Then, from the time of Philip, Philip of Macedon, they were under Macedonian rule. And then the Dorians gained them twice after the death of Alexander, but lost them for good to Antigonus, the Macedonian general. Ephesus was later ruled by the Italic kings of Pergamus. And in the Roman period, it was taken from the Romans for a time by Mithridates, the king of Pontus. But under Augustus, Ephesus became the capital of Roman Asia, and from there it became a very cosmopolitan city. By some estimates, its population grew to well over 400,000 citizens by the end of the first century, first century AD, many of whom were Roman. However, there's a catch to that too, and many of the... Um, Population estimates, even in the most scholarly sources, are all over the map. More conservative figures have recently revised that number down to only as many as 56,000, which is probably far too low. In any event, first century Ephesus seems to be a mixed population of Gepetite Ionians and perhaps some Shemitic Lydians and Persians, along with a greater number of Israelite Dorians and the Carians, Macedonians, and Romans, who also descended primarily from the ancient Israelites through either the Trojans or the Phoenicians. I'm certain you could probably throw a few hundred Edomite Jew merchants and their families in there too. They're just never recorded in history. Ephesus being made the capital city of Roman Asia, it became quite a 
cosmopolitan city with a typically diverse population. However, diversity in the first century was, to a great extent, only a diversity of white people, and nothing like it. Nothing like it exists in a far more corrupt world of today, where diversity has an entirely different meaning. As a digression, among the notable citizens of Ephesus in antiquity, was a historian named Menander, who was quoted at length in Flavius Josephus's writing against Appion. Menander had translated the ancient chronicles of Tyre from Phoenician into Greek, probably from Hebrew into Greek, and Josephus quoted them at length to show in part the antiquity of the kingdom of Judah. Sadly, the rest of Menander's valuable work is lost, and whatever is left is only that which is known from surviving manuscripts of Josephus or of the later Christian writers who had quoted Josephus in antiquity. The work in its entirety would indeed be very valuable, as the fragments of Menander found in Josephus, where they have been verified by inscriptions, inscriptions of both the East and the West, are shown to be quite, quite accurate and have helped historians to date such important historical events, such as the building of Tyre, 1208, BC, and the start of the building of Solomon's Temple, 967 BC, the founding of Carthage, 825 BC, and the beginning dates for the reigns of Hiram, King of Tyre, 980 BC, and also of Solomon. 971 BC. These dates are verified when compared to other historical sources and to Scripture itself. Modern Jews and their Zionist Christian dupes like to imagine that Menander of Ephesus had an interest in the ancient chronicles of Tyre because of the large numbers of Hellenized Judeans who were said to inhabit the city in the first century. While it is true that there were many Judeans there, it is more likely that just as Herodotus had said of Sales, calling him a Phoenician by race, Menander may also have been aware of the Phoenician origins of his own city and many of its people. Paul of Tarsus had visited Ephesus twice. His first visit to the city was evidently only for a short time, and Paul had 
left abruptly for Jerusalem, where in Acts chapter 18, Luke tells us that he had been there for a good while, and that the Ephesians had begged Paul to stay, but Paul departed with the promise to return to them. Priscilla and Aquila had accompanied Paul on this first visit to Ephesus, and while Paul went on to Caesarea, Jerusalem, and Antioch, Luke's narrative seems to indicate that Priscilla and Aquila were left behind in Ephesus, where they are described as having first encountered Apollos. After leaving Antioch, where Paul had ostensibly had that visit with Peter and the other apostles, which he described in the epistle to the Galatians, which was written at that time. And then after visiting Galatia and Phrygia, as he passed through Anatolia into Asia on land, Paul once again came into Ephesus. On his second visit there, he had spent a considerable time in the city, although Luke had only recorded some of the events of this ministry in Acts chapter 19. Paul left Ephesus after the troubles with the silversmiths and went into the Troad, traveling on again into Macedonia and then to Greece to visit the Corinthians for the last time. During this journey, he wrote, his, he wrote his epistles known as 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Corinthians. Leaving Greece, Paul and many of the other apostles who had been working with him convened in the Troad, where the epistle to the Romans was written. Then they passed by sea through Miletus en route to Jerusalem. It is when they reached Miletus that Paul had sent to Ephesus for the elders of the Christian assembly. We're never told whether or not there are any Christians in Miletus. And addressing them, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 20, we learn that his ministry, while he had been in Ephesus, had lasted for three years. So the events of Acts chapter 19 contained three years. It would be difficult to surmise that his ministry in Ephesus had lasted so long from the scant record of events which are provided by Luke in Acts chapter 19. But we must bear in mind, as we learn in Acts chapter 20, Luke was not with Paul during those years. In Paul's farewell speech to the Ephesians, he indicated that he would not see them again, and he was correct. When he reached Jerusalem, he was arrested, and being sent as a prisoner to Rome two years later, he was never freed. It must be that Paul had written this epistle after having spent considerable time in bonds in Rome, and from Ephesians chapter 6, it is apparent that he is preaching the gospel, and evidently that he was finally about to face Caesar in defense of his preaching. So this epistle was evidently written sometime in 61, or perhaps, although it's not as likely, in early 62 A.D.
Paul had reached Rome in the spring of 19, I'm sorry, in the spring of 60 AD. In 2 Timothy, Paul summons the apostle to Rome, and it was written, this epistle was written before 2 Timothy was written. With this background, we shall begin our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Paul, ambassador of Yahshua Christ, by the will of Yahweh, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Yahshua Christ, or in Christ Yahshua, the Codex Alexandrina says, all the saints. As we have already mentioned, the 3rd century papyrus P46 and the codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus are all wanting the phrase in Ephesus, where the remaining words may be read to the saints who are also faithful in Christ Yahshua. This is a rare occasion where the Christianian New Testament does not endeavor to follow the oldest manuscripts, because we believe that this epistle was indeed written to Christians in Ephesus for reasons which we have already described. As a, um, as a side note, we chose to include the words in Ephesus in spite of the fact that when this epistle was translated, I was in prison and had no access to any of these earlier Christian writers who do help who do help to prove our assertion. That's a personal note that I felt had to be made. So here our text follows the codices Alexandrinus, Beze, and the majority text and other later manuscripts, which do include the words. Comparing the accounts concerning Tychicus who was from Asia and was apparently, therefore, an Ephesian, as his partner Trophimus also was. And we could see that in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, and 21, verse 29. And who was sent to Ephesus by Paul, and who must have delivered this epistle, Although the evidence is only circumstantial, it is nevertheless manifest that this epistle was indeed written to the Ephesians. Seeing the habit that Paul's letters were copied and shared among various assemblies, a practice which we may see in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, it is likely, and while this is only conjecture, it is likely that this one was also copied in such a manner, and that therefore it is quite possible that some later scribes may have purposely omitted the reference to Ephesus while others had retained the words. It is apparent in many of these subscripts which scribes had later added to copies of the epistles that the assemblies of Christians in various cities had unduly vied for attention as being former domiciles of the apostles or as 
the one-time subjects of their attention. If they could add subscripts, which simply were often not true and which often conflicted with subscripts in other copies, then perhaps they could leave the word out. Verse 2. Favor to you and peace from Yahweh our Father and Prince Yahshua Christ. Blessed is Yahweh, even the Father of our Prince Yahshua Christ, who has blessed us among the anointed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And there are some differences amongst the manuscripts here. The opening phrase of verse 3 may be read, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Codex Vaticanus wants the words rendered, even the Father, or and Father. That term, and Christo, is typically translated in Christ. However, as we have demonstrated many times, Paul uses the term to refer to the anointed as the body of Christ collectively, and not merely to Yahshua Christ himself. Therefore, it is among the anointed here, without doing any damage to the Greek. The Greek phrase, translated in the heavenly places, only appears in Paul's writings, in this epistle to the Ephesians, and it's actually here perhaps five times. The word epuranios does appear elsewhere in Paul's letters in other forms, either as an adjective, heavenly, or as a neuter substantive referring to heavenly things. The word uranos alone is heaven, or, as we may say in modern language, space. And that word also appears seven to- several times in this epistle. This word, epuranios, means in heaven or heavenly. And earlier classical Greek writers used the term to refer to heavenly places or even to the gods above, which among Greek pagans were also perceived to be in heaven. Verse 4, just as he has chosen us with him before the foundation of the society for us to be holy and blameless before him, with love having preordained us into the position of sons through Yahshua Christ for himself, in accordance with the satisfaction of his will, for the praise of the honor of his favor, of which he has favored us among the beloved. The beloved are not merely believers. Rather, the beloved are the children of Israel, and those being favored, which Paul speaks of here, are those of the children of Israel, fortunate enough to receive the message of the gospel. The Queen of Sheba is recorded as having said of Solomon, 
In 2 Chronicles chapter 9, Blessed be Yahweh your God, who delighted in you to set you on his throne, to be king for Yahweh your God, because your God loved Israel, to establish them forever. Therefore he made you king over them, to do judgment and justice. And not even the queen of Sheba claimed Yahweh as her God, even though such a statement that she's characterized as having made is a very pious statement. In Hosea chapter 11, we read, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So while Christ was symbolically called out of Egypt, that the prophecy would be true of him as well, it is nevertheless true that the children of Israel collectively are the son called out of Egypt and that Yahweh God loved all of Israel, we see that Israel is the beloved. The promise is not predicated on belief. The promise is predicated upon God's love for Israel. Having believed in the promise, Paul characterized his readers as being favored among the beloved, favored among the entire larger body of the children of Israel. In Luke chapter 24, Joshua Christ himself is described as having upbraided certain of his followers as fools and slow of heart because they did not believe all that the prophets have spoken. Therefore, Christians cannot disregard anything that the prophets have spoken. This is the same Luke who recorded the words of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, at the beginning of his gospel, where he professed the purpose of the Messiah. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of of his servant David. Now, the horn of salvation is raised in the house of David, but not necessarily the us, since Zacharias was a Levite. He wasn't a member of the house of David. Christ was. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which had been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Today's denominational Christians would regard all of the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning Christ, but then they purposely disregard all of the prophecies and the covenants and the promises to the fathers concerning their children and the laws and commandments which were designed 
to keep them. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. If Yahweh is God, and if he has given us his word in the prophets, then the prophets are a description of a plan which is fulfilled in Christ, and which is not set aside since Christ himself had proclaimed that he had come to fulfill that plan. He said in Matthew chapter 5, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. If God has cast away his people, whom he foreknew, then he has destroyed the prophets, who attest that he would not do such a thing. It is not only what Christ had suffered, that is what he had come to fulfill. Rather, it is the reconciliation of the long-dispersed children of Israel, none of whom were ever called Jews, which that suffering would affect. That is what he came to fulfill. The suffering was only a small part of the story of the prophets, of the plan of God set forth in the prophets. The suffering was to effect the reconciliation of Yahweh God with the children of Israel. That is what Christ came to fulfill. The Judeo-Christians only pay attention, only focus on the, Christ, the, the side of the story where Christ is to suffer. They disregard the entire purpose of his suffering, and they replace it with fairy tales. Denominational Christians only regard the first and immediate part of the Gospels, and they neglect the greater purpose of God, which was expressed for Christ in the prophets, which was the purpose of the Gospel. Contrarily, identity Christians regard the whole purpose of God. In part 10 of our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Romans, while discussing Romans chapter 8, verse 15, we had demonstrated from classical writings, such as those of Diodorus Siculus and Plutarch, that the word huiothesia essentially means only to place a son, while another Greek word, hypoiesis, was commonly used to describe the actual act of adoption. The word we have here is theophesia. The word hypoiesis does not appear in Scripture. The translators of the King James Version and all of the versions which have followed have taken for granted that the word huiothesia means adoption. But in truth, the word only refers to the placing of someone who is already a son. And a son may be placed by his father for purposes other than adoption. A son may be disowned, as the ancient children of Israel were disowned. But a son 
may be placed back into the household, as we see happen in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. In Hosea chapter 5, we read one example in the prophets that Yahweh God had both had disowned both Israel and Judah because of their sin. And it says from verse 3, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hid from me. For now, O Ephraim, thou committest whoredom, and Israel is defiled. They will not frame their doings to turn unto their God. For the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them, and they have not known Yahweh. And the pride of Israel does testify to his face. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim shall fall in their iniquity. Judah also shall fall with them. They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek Yahweh, but they shall not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. But later on, in Hosea chapter 13, we see an example of how Israel would be preserved in spite of their sin in a messianic prophecy. The Judeo-Christians, the denominational churches, love their messianic prophecies, but disregard the purpose of those prophecies and the purpose of that Messiah. From Hosea 9, I'm sorry, from Hosea 13, verse 9. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. I will be thy king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? And thy judges, of whom thou said, Give me a king and princes, referring to 2 Samuel chapter 8. I gave thee a king in mine anger, meaning the kings of Israel and Judah from the time of Saul, and took him away in my wrath when the children of Israel and most of Judah were deported by the Assyrians. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, his sin is hid. The sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. This is the story of the Bible. It is about one family which would become many nations and as the sand of the sea, but which had fallen from the grace of God on account of their sins. In spite of that fall, those people would be delivered and preserved by their God for his glory. The sole purpose of Christ was to reconcile Israel to their God, and there is no other purpose in Scripture. If one is not of those same genetic children of Israel, one has no part in that purpose. The method of that preservation is described in part 
in Jeremiah chapter 31. In that chapter, we see that over a hundred years after Hosea, over a hundred years after the children of Israel and most of the kingdom of Judah were taken away by the Assyrians and the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed, the same people are being spoken of. Where it says in Jeremiah 31 in verse 20, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spoke against him, in those earlier prophets like Hosea, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith Yahweh. So mercy is a matter of prophecy for the same children of Israel of the Old Testament. Judah most of which had also been taken into Assyrian captivity when Jeremiah had written, but the remainder of which was about to go into Babylonian captivity as Jeremiah wrote. Judah is also considered in that same chapter where it says in verse 24, and there shall Judah and there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all the cities thereof together husbandmen, and they that go forth with flocks. For I have satiated the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. But the reference there to husbandmen, it's not talking about farmers or shepherds. It's really a prophecy. Of the apostles of Christ for which reason they were called pastors. And this is how every sorrowful soul of Israel and of Judah would be replenished in the promise of the new covenant which follows. In verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, the actual genetic family not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God. It doesn't say, and the church shall be my people. It says, and they shall be my people. So the promise of the new covenant is a promise for the same people of Israel which are punished for their sin by their God for breaking the old covenant. Here Paul attests that the people to whom he writes this epistle to the Ephesians, were chosen with him, chosen with God, before the foundation of the society. And they were preordained into the position of sons. The Greek word for preordained is proorizo, Strong's number 4309, 
And proorizo means to predetermine, to decide beforehand, to predestinate, to foreordain, or to appoint beforehand. One other place it appears in Paul's writing is in Romans chapter 8, where he said, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, those he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. If Yahweh God predetermined, decided beforehand, predestinated, foreordained, or appointed beforehand, before the foundation of the society, those men and women who were to be with him placed into the position of sons and conformed to the image of his son then we must be able to determine who it was that he was speaking about from the prophets of the Old Testament. However, Paul himself in Romans chapter 8 explicitly informs us that those who were chosen for this destiny were only those whom Yahweh God had foreknew as even the King James Version translated Romans 8.29 in part, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. So we see in Jeremiah chapter 31 that a new covenant would be made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah because they broke the old covenant. And in Amos chapter 3, the word of Yahweh says to the same children of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. That only one race of people, the children of Israel alone are the chosen, the foreknown, and the predestined people of God is the entire story of both the Old and the New Testaments. That these people alone would receive the new covenant and the mercy of God is not only a matter of prophecy in the Old Testament, it is the entire purpose of the New Testament as it was described in Luke chapter 1. In like manner, we may read from the 33rd Psalm. The counsel of Yahweh stands forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh. Now, not even the queen of Sheba claimed Yahweh was her God. She kept telling Solomon that he was his God. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh and the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Then again, 
from the 105th Psalm. O ye seed, offspring children, the same seed as the New Testament seed, just like the children of Israel collectively are called seed in the singular. In Galatians 3.16, the children of Israel collectively are called seed in the singular in Psalm 105, verse 6. Oh, ye seed of Abraham his servant. Abraham had other seeds in Esau, in Midian, in Ishmael. But it's only the children of Jacob who are the seed right here in Psalm 105, verse 6. O ye seed of Abraham, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen. He is Yahweh our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. The plan of Yahweh God as outlined in the words of the prophets and as fulfilled in Christ has not changed. In spite of the lies of the Jews, in spite of the lies of the denominational churches, it shall indeed be fulfilled according to his plan, not according to theirs. But understanding that plan, one must first come to understand Christian identity as it was taught by Paul of Tarsus in Romans chapter 4 in Romans chapter 9, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in Galatians chapters 3 and 4. And here, in these first two chapters of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in whom, speaking of Christ, of course, we have redemption through his blood, the dismissal of transgressions in accordance with the riches of his favor, which he makes abundant for us with all wisdom and understanding. And as we have just read in Hosea, Yahweh said of the children of Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, his sin is hid. And I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Likewise, he said to those same children of Israel in Isaiah chapter 49, Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers, Kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of Yahweh that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Then later, in that same chapter, But thus saith Yahweh, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered speaking of the children of Israel who were taken away captive by the Assyrians and were made a prey. For I will contend with him that contends with thee, 
and I will save thy children. None of these people were Jews. And I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh, and they shall be drunken with their own blood, as with sweet wine, and all flesh shall know that I, Yahweh, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. God is the Savior of Israel. Yahweh God is the Redeemer of Israel. And all flesh shall know that. But they won't know that he's the Savior and Redeemer of anyone else. There is no other Savior or Redeemer in Scripture. There it says of the Messiah concerning the children of Israel in Isaiah chapter 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, meaning that they had to be part of the flock in the first place. We have turned everyone to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Likewise, Paul had informed the Galatians of Christ in chapter 4 of his epistle to them. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. Paul had also told the Galatians that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And if one is not a child of Israel who is under the law, then one is not in Christ and cannot be justified by faith. It's that simple. One cannot be redeemed unless one is of the seed of them who were put away for transgressions. So Yahweh proclaims a little further on in Isaiah chapter 50, Thus saith Yahweh, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away, meaning the kingdom. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all, that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Then again, in Isaiah chapter 51, Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bare you. 
For I have called him alone and blessed him and increased him. As Paul had explained in Romans chapter 4, the faith of Abraham was his belief that his seed would be increased until they were many nations, that it was to these nations that Paul had his ministry. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it is explained that those same nations, which Paul had called Israel according to the flesh, were the nations of the Greek society which had turned to paganism. The Universalist who scoffs at this truth may say something like, oh, okay, but John tells us that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Indeed, the apostle had written that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. However, in the context of the epistle, where the apostle says, our, he refers to himself and the little children whom he addresses. But since that same apostle tells us, a chapter later, that sin is the transgression of the law, and since the law was only given to the children of Israel, which we learn in Psalm 147 verses 19 and 20 and since only Israel was under the law and since sin is not imputed where there is no law Romans 5:13 then the reference to the sins of the whole world in 1 John chapter 2 can only be a reference to the sins of every Israelite in any given place in the world it cannot be a reference to anyone not of Israel, since sin is transgression of the law, and nobody else was even under the law in order to transgress it. But even the phrase whole world does not mean what the universalist scoffers think that it means. They are wise only in their own conceit. Or perhaps... Deceit. We shall repeat from verse 8, which he makes abundant for us with all wisdom and understanding, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his satisfaction, which he purposed within, within himself. And that last phrase may have been rendered, which he appointed upon himself, since it certainly was Yahweh himself who was the Savior and Redeemer of Israel. In order to find the record of this purpose, which Yahweh God had, as Paul says, made known to us, one must search through those same prophets which Christ had come to fulfill. And the Word of God says in Isaiah chapter 54, For thy maker is thine husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name. And thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. 
For Yahweh has called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth. When thou wast refused, saith thy God, for a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith Yahweh thy Redeemer, and as a digression. The God of Israel shall be called the God of the whole earth, or the God of the whole world. When Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11, when Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 28, are also fulfilled. In those places, Yahweh said, I will make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. Where it is evident that the whole world will indeed belong to the children of Israel. Then, in Isaiah chapter 59, it says, And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith Yahweh. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith Yahweh, that my spirit is, is upon thee, and my words which, are, which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed nor out of the mouth of thy seed seed, saith Yahweh, from henceforth and forever. In Romans chapter 8, Paul had written, But we know that those who love Yahweh, to those who love Yahweh, all things work together for good. In accordance, I'm sorry, to those who in accordance with purpose are called. That Greek word rendered as purpose is prothesis, Strong's number 4286. And it is more literally a placing in public, a public notice. It was even used of the statement of a case in open court, a public notice of the case. The verb which, is, which appears here in Ephesians 1.9 is a related word, form of that same word. Protiphany, I'm sorry, is a verbal form of prothesis. Paul's words here and in Romans chapter 8 fully infer that Yahweh had previously made a public notice concerning those whom he had called. That notice is certainly not a mystery, for it is indeed found in the Old Testament where it had been made known, and where it is stated on many occasions that Yahweh has called the children of Israel and has excluded all others. We read, for instance, from Isaiah chapter 48, Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. No such public notice was ever made by Yahweh God for any other people. Therefore, it is exclusive to the people of the children of Israel, who are indeed 
for the most part, the surviving portion of the white Adamic race of today. It is only they who are called according to purpose. Anyone else who claims to be called is not called according to the purpose of God, and therefore they must be seen as the Apostle Jude had perceived them as infiltrators into the body of Christ. These are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out of their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Verse 10. For the stewardship of the full measure of the times, to sum up all things in Christ, the things in the heavens and the things upon the earth in him. In the future, we will have a greater discussion of the reconciliation of all things, which is indeed only the reconciliation of all things between Yahweh God and the children of Israel. The Greek word oikonomia is primarily the management of a family, as Paul usually uses the term. However, here, the purpose of Yahweh concerning the full measure of the times is the subject, and therefore it is written as stewardship. It may have rather elaborately been rendered for the management, management of the family of the full measure of the times. Later on, in Ephesians chapter 3, at verses 2 and 9, Paul speaks of the purpose of Yahweh concerning the children of Israel, and the word is translated literally, management of the family, since it refers to the children of Israel, who are the family of the faith, as Paul referred to Israel in Galatians chapter 6. We read in part in Daniel chapter 7, the purpose of Yahweh God in relation to the times of which Paul speaks. From verse 7, and I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half, and when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. The holy people of Daniel being scattered are the same children of Israel who have a promise by Christ of being gathered. And we read in John chapter 11, And this spoke he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also, he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Paul's dispensation of the gospel 
is meant so that all things pertaining to Israel could be summed up in Christ. To finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity as it is explained of the Messiah in Daniel chapter 9. Likewise, we read in Ezekiel chapter 34, in part, And the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophecy and say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? And then in verse 5, And they were scattered, because there is no shepherd. When they became meat to all the beasts of the field, when they were scattered, and here the reference to beasts of the field is a reference to the Assyrians, Babylonians, and the other Adamic nations involved in the destruction of ancient Israel. And in verse 6, My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yeah, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. The scattering began long before Ezekiel, and Daniel talks about the fulfillment of that same scattering in Daniel chapter 7. These are the dispersions of the children of Israel, which happened throughout the centuries leading up to the time of Ezekiel, who was writing over 600 years before Christ. Then we read in the Messianic prophecy, further on in that same chapter, from verse 12, as a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all the places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. As Christ says in Matthew chapter 15, I come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And I will bring them out from among the people and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. And therefore we see that it is the purpose of God for the children of Israel to be separate from all other peoples and not to be mixed with all other peoples. It is the purpose of the enemies of God, described in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, and in Revelation chapters 12 and 20, to mix the children of Israel with all the other peoples. Verse 11, speaking of Christ still, in whom we have also obtained an inheritance, being preordained according to the purpose of he who accomplishes all things in accordance with the design of his will. Yahshua 
Yahshua Christ, Yahweh God, does not have prophets so that he could say one thing and do something else. The design of his will is found in the books of those prophets. Here in verse 11 is the only time the verb clero, which is to receive an inheritance, appears in the New Testament. The noun, kleronomia, speaking of the inheritance itself, appears frequently. But here in this verse, the codices Alexandrinus and Beze have instead, in whom also we have been called. The result is still the same. Only the children of Israel were called. We may read another glimpse of this design of which Paul speaks from Deuteronomy chapter 32, from verse 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father, and he will show thee, thy elders, and they will tell thee. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel, for Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. The land of Canaan cannot be the land in question in Deuteronomy chapter 32, since that land was taken from other people who were also listed in the genealogies of Noah, for better or worse. Rather, there was a later promise which shows that the land of Canaan could not be the land of Deuteronomy chapter 32, which is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more spoken to David while he was in Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Judah and Israel cannot be the place of 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 1 Peter chapter 5, as the King James translators understood it, we see that the children of Israel remained the heritage of God. In the New Testament, where it reads, the elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. The message has not changed from the New Testament, from the Old Testament. The children of Israel have an inheritance in Yahweh their God, which they received from their fathers. On the other hand, Israel 
is the heritage of Yahweh their God, as Christ had also received from his Father. This is an interlocking, two-way relationship between the ancient children of Israel and their God, which cannot be broken by the winds of man or by the lack of understanding among men. This inheritance in Christ is, as Paul says here, preordained according to the purpose of he who accomplishes all things in accordance with the design of his will. And that design is expressed throughout the writings of the prophets of the Old Testament. That is the purpose for which we have the books of the prophets in the first place, so that we can look back and see that God is true. There is nothing in the prophets about a universal church being the people of God. There is nothing in the prophets about popes. There is nothing in the prophets about Israel being substituted with any other people. There is nothing in the prophets about the redemption or salvation of anyone other than Israelites. Rather, Yahweh says of the children of Israel in Hosea chapter 5 that I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hid from me. And in Jeremiah chapter 30, For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee. <coughs> Excuse me. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. The children of Israel, the children of God, long ago scattered abroad, would be regathered in Christ. That is the design outlined throughout the books of the prophets. But at the same time, there is a promise by God to make a full end of all nations wherever the children of Israel are scattered. It is far past the time that Christians learn to distinguish between these two parties, those to be gathered in Christ and those of whom a full end is going to be made. Don't you want to know which side you're on? In the eternal plan of God, one's origin truly determines one's destiny. Contending with this is to contend with the design of God. Paul did not say that Yahweh God accomplished this plan according to the design of the will of any particular man. In Jeremiah chapter 31, in that same chapter which promises the new covenant, it says, at the same time, saith Yahweh, will I be the God of, Israel, of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel. 
when I went to cause him to rest. This same rest is depicted in a slightly different way in Revelation chapter 12. And when the dragon saw that he was cast under the earth, he persecuted the woman who brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time, the same amount of time we saw in Daniel chapter 7. From the face of the serpent, the woman with the 12 stars represents the body of the 12 tribes of the ancient Israelites. Therefore, the woman represents Israel. That period of rest is finished, and the nourishment in the gospel of Christ has long been dispensed to the people of Israel. Subsequently, it says in the Revelation, And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. Christians have a further obligation to recognize the nature of this flood from the mouth of the serpent, as it says further on in that same chapter of Jeremiah, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. Does Yahweh endorse race mixing? Certainly not. He tests the children of Israel to see who would keep his law. Identity Christians have been saying for a long time, for at least 50 years, that today those days have come. And now it should be more evident than ever. Because the woman has certainly joined herself to the beast. The revelation depicts her once again in Revelation chapter 17, and with all certainty, this is the same woman. As a woman upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness, of her fornication. This is the state of the people of God today, whereby the woman has become a whore, and as they are being overrun with the flood of the serpent, we see that the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, thee shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. And fortunately, for the people of God, the design of Yahweh God is to save the children of Israel from their sins and from this which we see described in the Revelation. So Paul continues with verse 12. For which we are to be in praise of his honor, who before had expectation in the Christ, in whom you also, having heard the word of truth, the good message of your deliverance, to which also, having believed, you have been sealed with this Holy Spirit of the promise, which is a deposit of our inheritance, 
in regard to redemption of the possession in praise of his honor. Where Paul says, in which also having believed, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of the promise. He is not stating that the promise comes upon the belief in the gospel, but only that one receives the Holy Spirit in the assurance of the receipt of the promise through hearing the gospel. The promise exists independently of the belief. Once one realizes that he is a recipient of the promise because of the apparent fulfillment of their destiny by the children of the tribes of Israel as it is outlined in the Old Testament, then one praises the honor of Yahweh. The phrase, who before had expectation, may have been written as, who had expectation in advance. Not all of the children of Israel remained cognizant of their history. However, the awareness of the Messianic prophecies was certainly not confined to Judea, as we may see in the story of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2, or the reference made by the Samaritan woman, part of the remnant of the ancient Israel which were left behind by the Assyrians in John chapter 4. <laughs> However, it was not a mistake that the white nations of Europe had readily, for the most part, readily accepted the gospel of Christ. But only these children of Israel, nobody else, before had expectation in Christ. And as Paul had taught this same gospel of reconciliation to the Corinthians and to the Galatians, here he is also teaching it to the Ephesians, whereby he expected the Christians of Ephesus to have been of the descendants of ancient Israel according to the flesh, as he says in Roman, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 of those same twelve tribes, whom he says, share in that hope, which he mentioned in Acts chapter 26, where he said, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. The people whom we now know as Jews, never had any such hope because they were never truly Israel. They were Edomites who had absconded with the identity of the children of Israel and have always been opposed to the promises made to Israel. Christ himself had said this to them as it is recorded in John chapter 10, but you believe me not because you are not of my sheep as I said unto you. The denominational churches which teach that the Jews are Israel are denying the words of Christ who said that they were not Israel. We may once again see who had before had expectation in the promise of redemption in Isaiah chapter 43. But now, thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, 
Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. Redemption of the possession. By the laws of Yahweh God, you can only have an expectation to redeem something which you had already once possessed. And if you cannot redeem it, only your next of kin can redeem it for you. Only the children of Israel and their descendants, their seed after them, had ever had this promise. This is the entire significance of the Christ being the kinsman redeemer of the children of Israel. This is also the entire purpose of the gospel, as it is described by the word of Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 52. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall come no more into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust, arise, and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive, daughter of Zion. For thus saith Yahweh, you have sold yourselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus saith Yahweh God, my people went down aforetime, into Egypt to sojourn there, the first captivity. And the Assyrian oppressed them without cause, the second captivity. Now therefore, what have I here, saith Yahweh, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them make them to howl, saith Yahweh. And they still do. And my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I, Christ is Yahweh. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace. The connection to Christ. That bringeth good tidings of good, that publish salvation. That saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth under the children of Israel. Zion, the mountain, being a metaphor for the children of Israel, collectively, who are the real mountain of God. This is the purpose of his will. There's no other purpose in the prophets. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh the God of Israel, and good night. I will be here tomorrow night with the Protocols of Satan, Part 7, Yahweh Willing.